agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland Area Attorney Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how you doing? I'm uh, feeling like a big old slow turtle today, Mike, I'm afraid. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Get, well, get we, a little bit of coffee will be a little better. So. I, I'm sure as we, as we get, get throughout, you will be more like the, the hare than the tortoise here. But uh, before we do get started, I want to thank our newest sustaining supporters for the show on Patreon, uh, Wendy, uh, Araceli, and also Mark, who recently increased his support. And uh, Araceli, who's been a listener for several years, wrote in to thank us for helping her to think outside the democratic box. And I think that might wow. be yeah, more you than me, Jay, certainly. Um, but she wrote, I didn't follow politics, but after the 2016 election, I wanted to understand why people chose the president. I've learned so much because of this podcast and have a better standing of Republicans' views. So there you go. And we, we really well, appreciate that. I feel that. personally good about that. Yeah, yeah you should. Um, and of course, when you're a Patreon supporter, you don't just get that full second full length episode every week. You also get ad free versions of all our shows and other things at various levels of support. And if you want to check that out, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. And as always, if you would like to get all our bonus content, but you're not in a position to support the show financially right now, just send me an email, Mike at politics and I will make that happen. And also, I just wanted to, you know, we're getting toward the end of the year, Jay, and I'm kind of looking back at the dumpster fire that was, that still is, 2020. And there have been a lot of times, I got to say, where the last thing I've wanted to do practically is to just go dive deep into the just the tragedy of American politics in 2020. And, and, and I just wanted to thank everyone who's listened and supported the show throughout this year, in case I forget next week, because... There, it's not just a financial thing. It's also, you know, every once in a while on a regular basis, we'll get that, you know, so-and-so just became a new supporter. And it's just, it's like a, a sign that, you know, this matters to a lot of people, what we're trying to do. And sometimes it feels like we're just fighting you know, against immense forces of polarization and, 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 and incivility. And the fact that so many people during this difficult year have supported the show and continue to support the show. I, it's not just a financial thing, but to me, it, it's an emotional thing, and it really does uh, help to keep me going. And I just want to just express my heartfelt thanks to, to everyone out there. Yeah, well, and, and same for me. Um, yeah, this is this has been a year when it's it's been tough to keep going. Yeah. <laughs> it's just no question, uh, no no two ways about it. So, yeah. so. With with that, Jay, I you know I I think the place with, to start. Yeah, so, yeah. so our our, our uh, top story uh, is uh, breaking from uh, last night. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, has uh, essentially slain the Kraken. Um, uh, the court rejected uh, Texas's uh, direct uh, action lawsuit against uh, swing states: uh, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, um, and uh, Georgia. Um, basically on the, on the basis that, um, Texas lacks standing, uh, the court stated in a succinct order, Texas has not demonstrated a judicially cognizable interest in the manner in which another state conducts its elections. Uh, it was an unsigned order. There were, um, uh, I don't want to call them dissents. It's just sort of, uh, new positions, uh, from, uh, positions from, uh, Alito and Thomas, uh, stating that uh, based on their understanding of the court's original jurisdiction, uh, they would have taken the, uh, the, the they wouldn't have rejected it uh, out of hand. Uh, but they also said that they took no position and would not have blocked uh, the electoral college from meeting on Monday. In other words, they it was this was sort of a uh, technical sort of thing about uh, how suits are presented in the Supreme Court. Uh, and they indicated at least they would not have uh, granted the injunctive relief that that was uh, requested. Um, so with with that, that uh, would seem to be the last big suit that was was still out there. Um, 
President Trump uh, commented, uh, tweeted, I should say, uh, the Supreme Court really let us down. No wisdom, no courage. Um, <laughs> so, so there we go, Mike. And and what are your what are your thoughts there? I I am not surprised. Um, again, this is sort of a, a basically nine nothing decision. Um, and this is what uh, I had expected. This is what I would say most um, legal observers had expected, even uh, amongst the conservative ranks. Uh, there were a group of conservative law professors uh, who had filed a, a, a amicus brief, uh, basically saying that, look, this is this is just nonsense. But um, get it, getting your thoughts uh, as a as a political scientist, uh, uh, as as opposed to a uh, looking at it from the legal perspective. Well, you know, Jay, I used to be a conservative, and even though I am not anymore, I still am a big believer in what I used to think conservatives believed in, and that's federalism. And it, it struck me as odd that the basis of Texas's lawsuit was essentially that we in Texas feel that we have a right somehow to tell other states how to conduct their own election, which is if if that is not a you know a, an attack on the bedrock principle of federalism, and an attack that uh, aside from Texas, eighteen other states, uh, Republicans states with at least Republican attorneys general joined this lawsuit as well as and as well as over half of House Republicans filed an amicus brief. So it strikes me as odd because of course under this theory then. Uh, if California, say, has an issue with Texas's voting procedures, it would it should be able and to. And they do. Yeah, it, it should. <laughs> that means that California should be able to file a case against Texas and have it heard by the Supreme Court. And that's 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 a ridiculous theory, of course. And not only that, but if you read the lawsuit, Texas says, "Well, we don't ask this court to reelect President Trump," but of course, they only challenged in those four was it five, four or five states four. that you know, that went for Biden over Trump. And even if, even if you grant their, <laughs> their, their arguments, I, I put that in, in air quotes, that the problem is that state of state legislatures are the ones to decide the time, place and manner of elections. And therefore, if a change in election procedure is made by any other body than the state legislature, it's unconstitutional. Well, under that viewpoint, then, in fact, Texas's changes that they made to their election procedures would be unconstitutional because many of those changes were made actually by the governor and not by the state legislature. So this is this is a, a travesty I don't think is too too big of a word. And I guess my main concern is that, you know, for a while we've been talking about how this is just some kind of a fringe thing, crazy cracking people like Sidney Powell. But now we have not just President Trump, but over half of the Republicans in the House. And again, uh, 19 attorneys general of uh, of states in this country who have who, who signed on to this. And if that isn't disturbing to people, I, I got to say, I, I don't understand why not. And, and I guess my question for you, because you are still a conservative, is is this disturbing to you? Um, I mean, it's less disturbing because I look, I think the the result was correct, right? It was a nine nothing smackdown, get out of here. Um and and I think rightfully so. Um it's troubling to me that so many states signed on to this uh for the reasons that that you mentioned. Um now I haven't looked at all the the amicus briefs that were filed because you can file amicus briefs on on different things and you can you can raise issues and say uh, look, I think this is, uh, you know, we're filing just because this is an important question that the court ought to look at, um, without necessarily taking positions on, on the merits. Uh, some of these, these briefs I'm sure took positions on, on the merits and, and look, I think there, there are some, some meritorious things to argue about, right? Um, the Supreme Court itself sort of smacked down Pennsylvania, uh, about uh, whether it was properly, um, uh, segregating the ballots that were coming in late and so forth. Um, so I think, I think those, those are always, you know, th those are, are sort of important issues that, uh, look, was the state of Pennsylvania abiding by the Supreme court's earlier decision. Um, but, uh, that's, that's not for Texas to argue about. And, and that's what the court said. And, and I think they're right. Um, so I, I, that's, uh, <laughs> I, I guess, I mean, I, I, I see this as sort of, again, a judicial restraint 
kind of question. And, and, uh, you know, throughout our discussions, I think I've always argued that I'm, I'm very reluctant to see courts wading into elections. Um, you know, there needs to be some, some fundamental fairness guarantees and, and when there's fraud and, um, uh, malarkey, uh, it, it ought to be, uh, 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 quashed. Right. But, um, I'm, I, I become more and more, um, troubled every time we have a, a court having to, to weigh in on, on, on things like this. And look, in, in fact, the, the Supreme Court sort of already did weigh in on, on these questions. Um, it just didn't get, give the result that uh, Texas wanted. So, but I mean, more uh, and more, no. the position that you have here is a minority position within your own party. Oh, I don't know about that. No, I mean, um, the, the fact of the matter is, if you look at, I mean, if you, if you look at the fact that, again, over half of the Republican representatives in the House filed an amicus brief, and I read that brief, and that brief isn't just some sort of general, oh, well, elections have issues. No, that, I mean, that suggested that this should, this should go forward, and there were issues that the court should, should, the Supreme Court should take up. This is, not only that, again, but also that there were, you know, 18, 18 other states that joined yeah. Texas in this. And not only uh, that, not say, only the states, that. The states, the states trouble me more than the, the House of Representatives. Okay. And not only uh, that, but Texas, Texas's Republican Party, which, of course, is Texas is the, you know, the, the Republican, the Republican leaning or the Republican state and the largest one in the country. Uh, their chair, their chairperson, Alan Rest West, wrote uh, the Supreme Court in tossing the Texas lawsuit that was joined by 17 states and 106 U.S. congressmen has decreed that the state can take unconstitutional actions and violate its own election law. Number one, that is false. It did not decree that. Secondly, resulting in damaging effects on the other states that abide by the law while the guilty state suffers no consequences. And I'll, we'll put aside the fact that that's a sentence fragment, but uh, that's also false. And then he writes, this decision establishes a precedent that says states can violate the U.S. Constitution and not be held accountable. That is also false. And finally, he writes, this decision will have far-reaching ramifications for the future of our constitutional republic. Perhaps law-abiding states should bond together and form a union of states that will abide by the Constitution. The Texas GOP will always stand for the Constitution and for the rule of law, even while others don't. There was barely well, a sentence good. in that statement that was not a lie. <laughs> Last part's good, right? Except it's it's it is it is uh, contradicted by the sentence that came right before it. Right. I mean, does it concern you when the chairperson of the largest state Republican Party in the country says, "Hey, maybe we should secede"? Um, I I I guess it it concerns me. Um, I I don't think any of that's going to happen. I think lots of times politicians say things for political reasons. Uh, and they're just spouting off, and uh, that's that's it. I mean, I think the the chairman of the Texas Republican Party has about as much authority as as uh, to actually accomplish any of this as 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 you or I do, and and that's what the court said, right? I mean, he can he can say whatever he wants about a court decision, um, and as you pointed out, uh, most of it was was wrong. Um, but as so, a conservative, Jay, I mean, as a as a as a small C Burkean type conservative, which both you and I are, yeah. we we both I think accept and very strongly support the idea that uh, sentiments and traditions and sort of the general views of the people these these are things that are far more powerful than laws and rulings and that sort of thing. And I think oh, the yeah, concern. Yeah. From a conserv from a true conservative perspective, is is when you are uh, when you are building up a culture that suggests that the only that, that the only thing that matters is not is not procedure or process or democratic norms, but the only thing that matters is winning by any means necessary. That uh, laws and uh, courts are not are not going to stand forever against that if that's how that's what the people think. Oh, I, I think you're right. Um... And and again, I, I I think the the Texas chairman is is absolutely wrong and absolutely goofy, and I think he uh, sort of sort of makes a fool of himself uh, by by saying these things. Um, now, I, you know, I, I, again, I think you know the the, the place where, where you and I part ways so often is um, is is how much 
you think people actually listen to this and you tend to give give uh folks like this more credit than i do um my sense again as a conservative republican is this is a guy who's just saying a bunch of political nonsense uh to sort of placate uh his his folks um does does it have a a real uh, impact beyond beyond that i'm i'm always skeptical all right um and I you you take a different view saying look no this is a a more a mainstream type type phenomenon now look he is the the chairman of of the Texas GOP at least for the time being um but uh i i i think it's uh, you know i mean when does this when I, I would you say I, this I, becomes I, mainstream does it become mainstream when a survey says that 100% of republicans believe the election was stolen i i mean i guess what i'm saying is that it seems I, to me I that, that i suppose that technically would be a mainstream belief but um well what about now when over 70% of republicans say that this election was stolen how I many mean, say it? Over seventy percent. Oh, I mean, is that is that if that's not mainstream? I get, and that's why I'm saying I don't disagree with you and your views on this necessarily. But what I'm saying is that you are more and more an outlier in your own party. Well, and, I, I suppose that 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 could be true. Um, um, again, I I am, you know, when when you have a, I'm skeptical of of surveys also about, you know, well, was the election stolen? Well, sure. Yeah. Um, what would it take? I guess, you know, Jay, well, I'm that, not sure. You know? I'm not, I'm not sure. I think, I think the, um, I, I guess the here's, I think you would like to believe that people just, I'm, I'm in a bubble, right? Uh, um, because the, the Republicans I talk to and interact with and, and, uh, know a lot of, um, all seem to be of the let's call it the the Bill Barr, um, sure, yeah, version, right? Who says, look, yeah, there there were instances of fraud. Uh, they ought to be investigated. Um, uh, there are there are irregularities that ought to be investigated. Um, but none of these things raise to any level of of massive fraud, uh, or or you know this this kind of bizarre vote switching type stuff or Kraken type lawsuits that would overturn an election. Mm-hmm. Um, it's these things are, are nonetheless important to keep an eye on and to investigate and to prosecute um, because, you know, there may be an election uh, at some point where the margin is small enough where it can be affected by a couple hundred, couple thousand votes um, in a single state. That was the case in Florida in 2000. Um, but, but the numbers are, are just not there in this case. Uh, and, and I think also if you look at, there were, there were some, some stuff in the, in the Texas, uh, suit, which was just really sort of, um, bizarre, right? I mean, they, they did some sort of mathematical equations that said, essentially calculated Biden's, uh, ability to have won it. You know, the odds were, were about one in four quadrillion or something. Um, so I'm, I'm not real good at math, uh, but, uh, you know, again, it, was, it just seems sort of a, um, you know, bizarre kind of kind of claim. Um, and again, lacking in hard evidence of, look, we have uh, electronic forensic evidence that the machines were uh, were hacked or were programmed to move votes or uh, something of, of that nature. Right. Or we have. Uh, we know that there was a certain number of votes that were in Pennsylvania that were supposed to be segregated and weren't, and that's the difference. Um, that that just isn't isn't there, hasn't been there, um, and and I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying, Jay, and and you know I agree. A lot of times, you know, when I talk about when I talk with folks who are libertarians, I, I often say, you know, yeah, and if everyone were as were as rational and reasonable and kind of fairly well adjusted as you are i i would be a libertarian too and i think that's i think that's the problem you know i've spent a lot of time in the last month or so reading uh red state town hall uh newsmax those places and the stuff well no you wonder you're so goofed up well the stuff that you see there i mean and these are you know enormously popular 
sites and it's it's some scary stuff and so i think i think your bubble theory is right you know and i tend to agree also with with uh, my probably one of my favorite conservative writers jonah goldberg who who this this week uh suggested that what's going on here is kind of along the lines you know certainly he agreed with you about the court did did the right thing here but that a lot of members of congress and state uh, attorneys general sort of felt that they could go ahead and do this because the court would bail them out and he oh, re- absolutely yeah and he, he Actually, referred was, to these was, people you, yeah jonah, jonah beat you and jonah beat me to it that was going to be one of my next my next points was this was sort of a a no consequence kind of kind of vote for these guys they except can, it's not no consequence because it establishes it establishes and normalizes a type of behavior, and as, as as Jonah Goldberg puts it, he calls these folks power hungry jackwads defiling constitution in the name of syncophancy to Donald Trump. And I once I bowed to, John, to, to Jonah Goldberg's you know rhetorical uh, stylings there, and I think he's exactly right. And that's you know, and I find that you know disgusting. Essentially, that that seems to be the motive force, not freedom, not liberty, not states' rights or anything else. Just, hey, we win, you lose, and we'll do whatever it takes. And when power becomes the one, the sole, the main motivating force of any political party, I think that political party's in a lot of trouble. Well, we'll we'll, we'll see. I mean, again, the Democrats had nursed the, the whole Russia uh, bit for, for four years. Um, uh, there were, I mean, going, going back to, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be like a, a what about, what about you some guys, sure. But, but yeah, but what about, I mean, what, what about, I mean, there was something like, I remember surveys were saying that, you know, back in the, the, uh, early mid two thousands, something around the, in the neighborhood of 70% of, of, uh, Democrats thought that, uh, nine 11 was an inside deal. Right inside job, uh, Michael Moore's uh, goofy documentary um, uh, Fahrenheit 9/11 that this was all done so the the Bush family could build a pipeline to make money off of oil. Um, uh, all all of this, you know, is is goofy conspiracy theory kind of stuff. Um, but it was accepted and promoted, and um, uh, Michael Moore sat next to Jimmy Carter at the State of the Union speech and was was applauded. And um, you know, this is. So I, I guess I just I just look at this as um, Republicans are saying goofy political uh, things. I wish they wouldn't because I think it hurts the party in the long run. Um, but that said, they're just they're they're giving into this uh, their their baser instincts with this this kind of rhetoric. Um, but I'm I'm I, I guess I, I'm I'm skeptical about how much it really moves the ball uh, in terms of of. Uh, what voters are going to do yeah. or not do. I, and I that's- Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with you. I mean, I agree with you that we've seen this in the past and there's a, uh, there's a uh, willingness to accept conspiracy theories uh, across the board, I think. But I also think that it has gotten worse over time. And part of that is just a new media environment, certainly. And so that's why I am much more pessimistic. And again, I hope I hope that you're right about this. I, I feel like a broken record saying I hope that you're right, but but I do. And everyone should hope I'm right. Yeah. Well, that. But you know, the next I mean the next step here is that we're we're going to see the House uh, or so we're going to see the votes the votes counted right at, at in in the next Congress and it's almost certain that a member of the House is going to raise an objection to the electors in in at least one state and, and the question is on January sixth when this meeting occurs will any senator join them to force a vote on accepting the electors from that state. And, and my thinking here is that certainly Donald Trump will be trying and Trump allies will be trying very hard to get at least one Republican senator to go along with a House challenge. But on the other hand, I'm sure Mitch McConnell and a lot of other Republican senators are going to try to exert a lot of pressure so they don't have to take a vote on this yeah. sort of thing. Right. And I don't know in this in this case, I can see, for instance, if uh, on, on the fifth, Kelly Loeffler wins her runoff uh, election, that maybe she's a candidate or maybe Marco Rubio or Ron Johnson. I could easily see one of them uh, going ahead and being the senator who uh, agrees with a House objection and leads to a vote that's going to be, I mean, in the end, I just cannot see Congress overturning the will of the people. But uh, I still think that's going to be a, a horrific thing. 
Um, yeah, I, and I don't think that's going to happen. I hope for, you're right. For, so the same reasons. <laughs> I, look, we were a couple weeks ago when we did, we did the election show. Um, uh, Ken was was very certain that the Supreme Court was just going to hand the election to Donald Trump, notwithstanding uh, who voted for uh, you know a, any votes. Um, and I, I took issue with that because I thought it was absolutely wrong, and and I I think he was right. I mean, all all of these cases. Uh, many of them heard by uh, Trump appointees have have come to naught, right? Um, uh, so I, I don't, I just don't see that happening. And I, I think there is a a, a Jonah is, is exactly right in that uh, some of these places where you can, you know, you can make the political objection and say, ah, damn that Supreme Court, uh, we was robbed. Um, uh, but you know, knowing that there's no actual consequence to them saying that. Uh, it, it's, you know, shores them up with the base, but, uh, there's, there's no, um, danger that, you know, anything they, they do or say is really going to impact. I think that the Republic, at least in the immediate sense, now I get your, your agreement that the more mainstream these views become, then, then the more problematic it is, uh, down the line for the legitimacy of our institutions and so forth. But, um, uh, I, I, I I doubt I don't think there's going to be uh, I don't I don't see uh, any senator um, crossing over on on this. Well, they crossing over. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I will I get I, I know before we have to move on, but before we do, I will just end with uh, I hope you're right, Jay. I I usually am. So the our other other big news again breaking just from from last night uh, is that uh, the FDA has approved the Pfizer vaccine. Um, uh, this, uh, is, is sort of a, uh, the, the fastest vaccine ever to be approved. Um, it comes on the heels of a, uh, some criticism by Donald Trump, uh, who called the FDA in a, um, tweet, a big slow turtle, uh, for not moving more quickly on this. Um, I think there's, there's, I mean, I, I think you look, this is, this is, uh, unalloyed good news, right? Um, uh, it's, uh, 50 million doses. that's going to, you know, starting as right now, there are probably people getting vaccinated. They're listening to our show as they're getting vaccinated, Mike, um, which, uh, which is good on two fronts. So, um, that's, that's good. Uh, there's the president's parting shot at the FDA. Um, uh, there is the Moderna vaccine is likely to be approved, uh, you know, again, shortly, uh, you know, within the next week or so. Uh, so we'll have uh, uh, two vaccines out there. Um, your your thoughts on the the politics and the the road that got us um, to this vaccine? Well, I mean, I, I you know certainly agree with you on all of the big points. It's uh, sort of a a lot of times you say uh, when we talk about sort of Trump administration folks is can anyone play? Does anyone know how to play this game? Uh, I, yes. I think, and just like now, you know, this week we heard stories that uh, a couple of days ago, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows called up Stephen Hahn, the, the commissioner of the FDA, and said, "Hey, if you don't if you don't approve this by Friday, you can hand in your resignation." And right. even if he was joking about that, right? That is just such a colossally stupid thing to say, and and Han has and and, and Han has denied it. But there are, I guess, multiple other sources that say no. That in fact was said. And you got to think, why in the world, given the fact that you know that people are, some people are already reluctant to take this, why you would even joke about something like this? It just that I mean, maybe it's a it's a minor thing, but it just kind of boggles my mind. Uh, and, and the same thing with with President Trump tweeting, get the damn vaccines out now, uh, you know, <laughs> that, and spelling damn wrong because, you know, he just was too impatient to put an N in damn, just D-A-M. It's much quicker. Um, And I guess it just it's, you know, it, the, the man, I don't know what bothers me more about the Trump administration, if it's, if it's the mendacity or the incompetence. It's really a combination, I suppose. It just makes it a, you know, uh, what have you sandwich. But uh, Gosh, yeah. What are, what are you going to do after January 20th? Um, oh, there'll be plenty of Donald Trump to, <laughs> to you know, he's, he's um, essentially, Lindsey Graham thinks he's going to be the shadow president. So there you go, you know. Okay. Um, so. I mean, I, I can see, though, um, criticism of the the FDA. There is a, a sense that 
look, this could be done quicker, could have been done quicker. Um, England was was uh, ahead of us by about a week or two. Um, you could say the Russians were ahead of it, but I think that's sort of a separate issue because I don't think anyone really if you if you're concerned about uh, American pharmaceutical companies and and uh, vaccines, well, I mean, uh, let me let me introduce you to the Russians. Um, yeah. So I I don't know that that's an apples to apples comparison. Um, but there was I guess there was still a sense that that I've I've gotten, and this isn't you know political. This is just you know people talking on the street of, of like, look, are we ready to go? Let's let's uh, let's approve the damn vaccine. Um, and it it. You know, it, it seems that, that there was just there's there's a feeling there were okay or a couple extra days delay in getting this done. Now, does that really change the equation long term? Probably not. Well, not at uh, all, right? Because I, I mean, think, that, I that's the that, whole point. Yeah, I think that sense is that sense is is out there. Yeah, and, and I think maybe that's what he was responding to. And, and um, I guess that's my point, Jay, is that especially given the fact that the doses have already been bought, and so the whether it's approved Friday or Saturday makes literally no difference in terms of the rollout and the distribution that that yeah no no i i think it but it does i think make a a a symbolic difference in terms of um look we're moving really quick to get this done or yeah we'll get to it when we get to it i think i I think there's i think there's 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 a difference there I, i agree in the real world practical sense um there is there is little to no difference, uh, but I, I think just in terms of perception. But there's no one right? at the FDA. I don't think there's any perception that the FDA about this was saying, "Ah, we'll get to it when we we'll get to it." I mean, oh, it's, I think, it's, it's, I think been, a huge. I think there's a huge perception out there of that. Really, that the yeah. FDA is just being kind of lackadaisical. Oh yeah, well, you know, we we just it's going to take some time. And, yeah, and it's just we're, I, I we're no, no, I'm, slow I'm rolling I'm not saying that, that perception is correct, but I'm I'm saying it it exists, and maybe oh. that's because President Trump has suggested that there's a deep state in the FDA that's trying to delay the vaccines rollout to hurt him politically. Um. Well, I mean, how much is going to hurt him politically at this point? No, but he was I, saying that months I, ago. I'm saying I don't. Yeah, but I I think it's I think it's more of a uh, sense of. Um, Look, this is a, a government bureaucracy, and and look, this has been out there for a while, right? That the FDA takes too long, and and plenty of folks from both parties over the years have said FDA processes ought to be able to move more quickly. Um, so I I think that's that's just kind of in the air, right? There was a sense of of you know gotta gotta wait in line at the post office, sort of, uh, you know, you know, look, everything's being held up with a by a federal bureaucracy now, right, rightly or wrongly, um. But I think that perception exists, uh, and was it stoked by Trump to some extent? Eh, you know, probably. But um, uh, I, I, I think there was a frustration out there, right? At least as of like, as of like a week ago, when everything keeps coming back, yeah, yeah, we're ready to go, ready to go, um, and and uh, they they didn't move as quickly. So, and um, I, I feel like, yeah, I see what you're saying, and I feel like the FDA moved as quickly as they possibly could to ensure basic standards of safety. And I think that's exactly what we want the FDA to do, because the last thing we'd want is to do that Russian sort of thing where you say, oh, we have a vaccine. Does it work? I don't know. Let's just roll it out. And, you know, right, right. Yeah, if I don't it, think anybody thought that was really well. I, was, I, I shouldn't say that there were there were certainly some folks and there were folks on the left, of course, who were saying, hey, I don't trust this vaccine. It's Trump's being, you know, rushing it through. Sure. Yeah. Um, but but to me, I guess, maybe the, you know, the, the best. Um, uh, example or, or similar thing is like it's if if you you know you're watching a football game and there's a a close a close play um, and they show the review and it's pretty obvious from the review what the result of the play is going to be um, but then the officials go in the little booth and they're talking to New York and it it just it it's it's taking forever and you're looking like hey look I, I you know anybody can tell you you know whatever the catch was good. What are we waiting for? Let's get on with the game. That's that's the kind of sense that I that and that I'm and I see about. what you're saying, and I get that impatience. But of course, this is a very different sort of thing because it's not that clear cut. I mean, there were in fact four people on that independent uh, advisory board who 
didn't vote to approve it for everyone 16 or didn't think it should be approved for everyone. But yeah, part of that had to do with, yeah, who was it being approved? Not necessarily the underlying safety of the vaccine, but for certain people in certain age groups and that sort of thing. So yeah, and and my point is this isn't just, well, was this pass interference or not? not? This is is by far the the quickest uh, approval and development process for any vaccine ever. And, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's, it gets Warp so, speed, baby. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's super important to make sure that something isn't approved that all of a sudden we find out there are major allergic reactions or other things like that. And now, you know, and, and so I think the FDA did a, did a great job under very trying circumstances. And while I certainly agree with your point that in the broader sense on ever on a regular day to day basis, that some procedures can be absolutely speeded up in this case i think they did a fantastic job in the face of a, a lot of a lot of pressure. no and i i i would agree with you a hundred percent of that on the on the merits on the substance of it i, I think it, it's more a question of of optics yeah that, yeah i see that right yeah i mean I, let, let's put this with the, the fda here's here's what you could have done fda chairman could have said um we are going you know just to let everybody know we just heard back from the uh, advisory panel we're scheduling an emergency, super urgent meeting Friday night because we want to get this done right away. You know what I mean? That kind of statement just would have would have uh, put to rest the the Trumpian sort of oh they're just dragging their feet. Um, so okay. Right. Well, oh, so <laughs> go ahead. I would say, yeah, the, the, the larger point, you're I think, just thinking you're just cogitating. No, yeah, the larger thinking. point not to be that, that we that we everyone agrees on, I think, is that it is excellent, excellent news that we have an approved vaccine and we will shortly have a second approved vaccine. And it's nice to have some light at the end of the tunnel, especially given the fact that things are looking pretty bleak right now and they're likely to look considerably worse in the next few months. So moving on to our next uh, next story, uh, the Federal Trade Commission and a group of uh, 48 attorneys general, um, that's all but two, have filed antitrust suits against uh, Facebook. Um, uh, the basis of the suits have to do with whether Facebook's past deal activity uh, violates um, antitrust provisions, uh, squelching competitions by buying uh, potential com- competitors. Um uh, supposedly, there was a an email uh, by Mark Zuckerberg expressing uh, that it is better to buy than compete, uh, which is quoted in the lawsuit. Um, and in many cases, I suppose he's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they, it was accused of uh, uh, anti-competitive conduct and how third-party apps access information uh, as well. Uh, and you know, so the next next state, this this obviously moves to a a big antitrust cases are are notoriously complicated and, and uh, take, take a very long time. Um, but uh, I think there's, there's, it's interesting in that um, we have sort of a, a broad sort of uh, coalition, right, of uh, uh, folks on, on all, all political sides uh, taking aim at Facebook. Um, uh, and uh, uh, my, my sense, I'll let you, actually, you should go with your sense first, but um, well, I mean, my sense is that uh, on the facts, it seems incontrovertible, at least to me, that Facebook, of course, bought up potential competitors. And there's plenty, there's there's a documentary trail to kind of back that up. And of, of course, they it's bought- It's better than the Texas suit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> certainly. Yeah. I mean, of course, they bought Instagram in 2012 and WhatsApp two years later because they wanted to squelch the competition. And, you know, the FTC approved both of those, uh, both of those acquisitions. And I understand Facebook's case saying, hey, no, no take backs on this. You said it right, was right. No, okay. Yeah, and, and yeah, Facebook asked fair and square and went through the process. And, you know, the, the way the review process works is the, you know, the FTC looks at is this acquisition, will it harm competition or may it in fact actually uh, favor competition? Yeah. And the problem here, it seems to me, is what's called the consumer welfare standard. And really, this has been the standard that's been used in antitrust uh, considerations from the, really the 1970s. It kind of became the focal point. And basically, that means that the question is, how does or how will this likely affect prices? And it, the, 
the kind of uh, equation is, you know, uh, better consumer welfare means lower prices. And the problem, of course, is when a service is ostensibly free, at least free in terms of you handing over your money, that becomes very difficult to apply that standard in any meaningful way. And, and this is the issue here. And so it seems to me that in this case, what the FTC and the states are focusing on are really two things. Number one, effects on innovation are the argument being that having Facebook be just this one, you know, uh, one company that has essentially monopolistic power that squelches innovation and that's bad for consumer welfare. And secondly, and I think this is a more tangible thing, the privacy concerns, pointing out that that Facebook bought a lot of these companies, they had better privacy policies, and they changed those privacy policies. And so consumers are tangibly getting less in terms of privacy, whereas on the innovation front, it's harder to make that case saying, well, there would have been more innovation had there been more competition. You can't really point to something tangible there, even though that seems like a reasonable argument to make. It's not as substantive. Well, I think you can you can also say it's almost like there's there's an incentive to uh, innovate uh, so that you'll get bought out by Facebook. Yeah, there's that too. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of the, right? It's sort of just sort of a different model. Instead of innovating to compete, let's innovate so that we can uh, eventually, uh, you know, be enough of a thorn in their side that would just pay us off. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, in terms of the in terms of the remedy that they're asking, that the big thing that's been talked about a lot is that Facebook would have to sell off Instagram and WhatsApp, but also, and this is a little, I think, been a little underreported that. Facebook would have to allow third-party developers uh, essentially unfettered access to their APIs, which is basically how you know they they communicate with Facebook essentially. And so the argument is that, well, uh, in a sense, that Facebook shouldn't be allowed to discriminate in giving in having access to their APIs. It should be sort of if you want it and you meet these these general standards, you can have it. But it's not like we will restrict access to this just because we see you as a potential competitor. Right. And I think that that's pretty important because that access is really, you know, is a, is a critical thing if you're trying to sort of grow uh, some sort of a, some sort of a social media related type of service. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think there's, it's, I mean, a lot, lots um, uh, may remain to be seen again. Uh, antitrust cases are incredibly complex and there's all sorts of uh, expert testimony by dueling economists, uh, and and you know there it's it's a it, it's not something that is is quick and easy. And uh, I guess you can just look at it and say here is the uh, here is the you know just result, right? That you can look at this and say yeah, this this makes sense. Yeah, I I um, expect I I don't expect this to go to trial. I expect there to be a settlement at some point on terms that are fairly favorable to Facebook because I really think that. Facebook has a fairly strong case here, uh, legal case here, as the law is written. Now, I think, I think that there's a problem with the consumer welfare standard. It made sense, as I, as I described it. I think it made sense in a pre-internet age when we weren't talking about free, again, ostensibly right, free we're talking services. About, yeah, we're, when we used to be talking about just how much is a consumer yeah. paying in money for the service. Yeah, I think what we need here, and this is something you know we've talked about a lot on the show, is when you try to do a lot of this stuff through regulation, as opposed to legislation, you're on much shakier ground. And so I think what needs to happen is I think there needs to be some serious reconsideration of antitrust law, updating it for the for the you know the digital age and not just through FTC regulations but actually through acts that Congress you know puts into law and I unfortunately don't see that happening I don't know if you do Jay um you know I think there there would be yes yes and no because on on the one hand um here's here's the thing the person who is sitting in the driver's seat right now as far as that legislation would go would be facebook right and and uh twitter uh it would be the big boys who would most likely participate in writing that so i think they might uh they might welcome that um uh but it it does it does open up a whole lot of messiness uh doing things uh Again, out in the open, not that regulations aren't out in the open. There's what's called public comment and people read it and talk about it. But uh, making people vote on it, um, I think, is is, yeah. is more difficult. And and there's also, 
you know, there, there's the, the, the unintended consequences that, you know, when you're dealing with something that is sort of a new industry, a new business model. And I say new, I mean, we're talking, you know, been 20 years, yeah. uh, almost 15, 20 years. Um, but, but yeah, what, you know, I think we, everyone sort of understood the incentives and the, uh, um, uh, the, you know, if you keep in mind, our antitrust laws were written in, in 1912 against a, uh, a, just a different kind of economic backdrop altogether. Um, and, and even the, the anti-competitive, uh, uh, type of, of behavior that was being, um, prosecuted in, in 1912 is completely different from the type of anti-competitive behavior that was being prosecuted in, uh, 1990. Sure. Um, so it, we're, we're at a, a, an even different, more different world now. So, yeah. And, and I think, you know, if we go, if we go back to those years in the early 20th century when these laws were being were were put into place you know it wasn't just that sort of economic consumer welfare standard they had sort of a broader sense of anti-competitive behavior antitrust but i understand the appeal of the consumer welfare standard because you talk about unintended consequences it's a lot easier to measure that sort of effect on price things and it is a lot trickier to say well how do we factor in the cost of less privacy because it's not a it is a cost but how do we measure that that's a lot that's a lot more subjective and it is a difficult sort of thing so this isn't a simple black and white issue and you know i'd also point out that i think that if the fundamental concern is and for a lot of people it is is privacy well then i don't know that this is the appropriate way to go about it i think the appropriate thing to do then is to pass legislation that mandates that all competitors play by the same heightened privacy rules, which is essentially right. what the EU did with the GDPR regulations, right? And right. so this is kind of – I think this is just sort of a way to try to get at the Facebook monopoly, but it's not the most direct way of ensuring greater privacy. But honestly, Jay, you know, I don't really see that there's a whole lot of pu public outcry about this. Uh, and so no. – that's another reason why, I mean, people aren't up in arms saying, oh, my God, I hate Facebook. It's evil or anything like that. It's, so I don't see there being much happening here in a way that achieves the ends of the people of the states that brought this suit, you know, would like, basically. Uh, well, I you know, I think there's, you know, there, there's something out there, and this is uh, something you talked about, uh, well, a couple weeks re recently. Um, there is just sort of a general anger directed at social media. Um, and it's a little bit like anger directed at Congress, right? That, you know, they're all a bunch of bums, well, but not my guy. So there there are plenty of people who might say, yeah, social media, Facebook has too much power. There ought to be something done. Um, but, okay, do you want to change Facebook or you have to pay for it or, or uh, you know, have more limitations on what you can use? Well, no, no, no really. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I think no, no, you're yeah, right. Yeah. There's that sort of sense that that there's a political thing that why it's sort of a no lose uh, situation. Um, yeah, uh, for state attorney generals to weigh in. Yeah, on. I think I think you're right, and I think the probably the main uh, if there's any any sort of real real world ramification for this, I think it's just going to make it a little bit more difficult for Facebook to acquire competitors in the future. That would be that would be my sense of the the big thing that's probably going to come out of this. Yeah. You know, and yep. and so, and yeah. Um, but, you know, also I'd say that in, in talking about what the public cares about, I think you're absolutely right. It's not about this. It's more about kind of uh, the real problem with social media is that kind of driving polarization and people getting their tweets blocked, or, you know, certainly. Right, president. right. And so this doesn't, this doesn't address any of that, right? So although, I, although there is sort of a, I mean, you can make the argument, listen, if there were uh, more platforms available, uh, than than the censorship of uh, you know one one platform's uh, decision not to publish or to censor uh, becomes much less problematic because there are plenty it of other places else. to do yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if there's there's five newspapers in town and uh, you know only one will report the story, well, that's okay. You're still getting reported in in one. So yeah, yeah, I, th I think you're right, and I think that's why a lot more of the focus that we hear uh, from Congress on this has been about Section 230 and about about right. that sort of thing, which is... But again, those aren't, those aren't antitrust issues. No, no, 
entirely sort of different thing. And one other thing I just wanted to point out, it's kind of, kind of interesting when, when you're talking about monopolies and some of the arguments that these, the, the attorneys and, and the heads of these social media companies make for what they consider competition. I think, you know, at one point, like uh, Netflix's CEO said, well, our main competitor is sleep. You know, it's just really tough yeah. for us to <laughs> like, you know, that's, it's some of the arguments are, are really sort of almost like goofily humorous, but you know, it's, it's uh Again, I don't really see anything happening for this. And even if it does, it's going to be certainly years, uh, years coming, I would say. Yeah. And it, and it will be, I think, some sort of negotiated resolution, um, much as the, you know, uh, as these big cases were in the past. Yeah, definitely. So uh, let's move on. I mean, I, I guess the, the next thing we wanted to hit on was just state of uh, COVID relief. Um, and it, it sort of seems to be a two steps forward, one step back uh situation um uh following up on our story of last week the the uh, uh the senate did pass the defense authorization uh bill which is a completely separate thing but um by a a uh, uh filibuster proof majority veto proof uh, yeah veto proof even veto, yeah, yeah both so actually yeah, yeah, right. yeah exactly <laughs> they did they did both um and you know i guess the the question now is uh, they're also doing a, a budget reconciliation or, or a budget, you know, keep, keep us open, keep us moving. Um, at this point, uh, you know, there've been some discussion of, well, would this include all the COVID relief? Um, it doesn't look that way right now. The Trump administration has pushed for, uh, additional, you know, personal relief to be in part of the package. Um, and it, it seems where things have just stalled a little bit at this point. Mike, and I want to get get your thoughts. And I don't know if there's going to be a whole lot to report or talk on this um, because we sort of don't know what we don't know. But uh, you are you're more pessimistic than I am. So yeah. you can go first. Yeah, I mean, I expressed that pessimism last week and I think the week before because I don't really see a deal happening because they're just doesn't seem to be enough of a, a willingness or appetite among uh, enough Republican senators to accept any sort of significant state aid or to significantly cut down on COVID liability. And so uh, I think the last best hope for anything before the end of the year, when all of a sudden millions of Americans will lose their extended unemployment benefits, which is a problem because, of course, jobless claims have surged much more so this month than was expected by a lot of analysts, is we might get a situation, and, and Mitch McConnell suggested this, that they just drop both liability protection and state aid and move something more along the lines of that kind of half a half a trillion dollar bill that McConnell suggested earlier, but again, without the liability protection thing there. Right. And, and that, that's, that was sort of our recommendation too, is let's start presenting just some, some straight ahead clean bills yeah. on, on specific uh, targeted pieces um, of COVID relief rather than trying to do the grand bargain. Um, and, I, I still think something like that is going to happen. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, maybe piecemeal. I, I don't expect a grand bargain at this point. Um, but you know, uh, I, I really think, Jay, I've tried to, the liability piece has just been something Mitch McConnell's been adamant about. And it, it's puzzled me for a while, but then it stopped puzzling me. And here's why. Number one, as an attorney, I'm sure you know that it's not like you can just kind of file a liability claim and all of a sudden the golden, the, the golden, I don't know, bank vault opens up and you're showered with money, basically. It can be pretty tough to prove yes. liability, especially, I mean, as long as a business takes reasonable precautions, businesses are protected from frivolous liability claims. And it's even more difficult to demonstrate if you have like something like a pandemic because you have to be able to link your your injury with that specific business. And so when it's everywhere, that's even tougher. And when you look at the lawsuits that have been filed f about COVID, you know, uh, only so far, 18 have been filed by customers against businesses for personal injury and another 76 at this point, uh, about last numbers I had, by employees for lack of like PPE or exposure. Yeah. And, and, and so it's not really a thing. And so, but I think here's my 
uh, kind of trying to get into Mitch McConnell's mind. It's a great way to sort of symbolically stand up for businesses and also to try to force out what the Republicans, what a lot of Republicans really don't want, and that's the, the money to states. And so it's just a poison pill, basically. Um, that, I, th- I think there's some of that. Um, I, part of this, I, I think, though, is also um, – Early in my career, uh, I uh, worked at a firm where we did uh, defense of a lot of asbestos-related cases. And the way asbestos cases worked then, and I think still work now to the extent that they're still around, um, there, you, I mean, the way asbestos, asbestosis, um, and um, uh, uh, the uh, cancer that uh, um, mm-hmm. that that you get from from asbestos, um, it, it is was weird in that it has such a long latency period. So what you would have would be uh, plaintiffs who would say, look, I was exposed to asbestos. Well, where? Well, they would list then all of the places they potentially could have been exposed over the past 20, 30 years. And you would have, uh, they would they would do these, these depositions and they do them in hotel ballrooms because there were this many defendants. And you would go on for hours asking each plaintiff, well, do you remember ever seeing this product? Well, no. How about this product? Well, yeah, maybe. Um, and and the result was there were – it was this massive suit against sort of everyone uh, even related uh, in, in in the industry, right? Whether you produced it, distributed, had a product with it, uh, and, and asbestos was everywhere. Uh, it, in sort of our, our World War II through post-war period, uh, I think there's there's that concern yeah. um, that you would get this um, suit that would say, and you could you could get a whole lot of them um, saying, "I contracted COVID." Uh, well, where'd you contract it? Well, let's see. I went to this place one day, I went to this place another, I went to this place another, and essentially, what happens then is is all those defendants have to. Uh, prove their innocence, right? It sort of flips that they have to, uh, and 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 the the expense uh, in in doing this uh, can be can be significant. Uh, so it was always a a really a big deal if you could get out of one of these cases where a a plaintiff uh, could not identify ever having had one of your products. Um, that was that was a big deal because it saves you the the uh, potential uh, cost of trial and, and look it, in in almost all these cases there was there's typically a settlement there was a, a big massive federal um, uh, uh, sort of pool of money also that was contributed from a lot of these these uh, asbestos manufacturers who went bankrupt that exist simply to to fund the, the settlement so anyway that's that's a whole lot about asbestos and not a lot about a COVID but. I think that's that's the sense and that's the concern um, in the business community is that you could see these these large uh, actions against absolutely everybody uh, and then businesses are being hauled into court uh, to have to uh, say, look, no, I, I you know, I can prove he didn't catch asbestos at my place. Um, and that's that's difficult and expensive and, and time consuming. Um so I think that's the thing. Now that that said, uh, many states have already passed their own forms of uh, liability protection. Federalism this would apply. Yeah. So this this would be you know federal court. And my my also my sense would be a lot of. Um, I, I think it would be difficult to bring. I don't want to say difficult, uh, but the the proper venue for asbestos cases, in my view, would be more likely state courts, right? Um, just because of the way jurisdiction works. Now, could you have have contracted it at your state, and and you have one company suing another, or an out of state company that does business in your state, and then you contract? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but um, uh, it, it's probably more a state court play than than a federal court play. Um, at least at least as as things are set up now. But anyway, that's that's my take as far as why why McConnell is is adamant on that is I think they don't want to have another situation um, uh, where where you just have these these massive lawsuits that involve everyone and go on for uh, you know literally tens tens of tens 20 you know years yeah um, and I, I think I think a lot of folks on the left including myself to a certain extent would say well okay so Republicans want 
a lot of Republicans, so I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but a lot of Republicans want minimal legal restrictions or regulations on businesses. They should be able to do more or less what they want in terms of COVID and just, you know, people and workers just assume the risk if they want a job. And, and But they also want special protection from liability for businesses. And so it, it starts to feel to a lot of folks on the left, especially like Republicans are arguing for a sort of a like a Thunderdome sort of situation where it's like, well, just we'll see what the hell happens, you know. And and, and it seems to me that of the two, uh, liability, expo I mean, the whole idea about the potential to file a suits, that's supposed to keep businesses in line and to make sure that they say, well, oh, yeah. hey, which is a lot less heavy handed, certainly than regulations, right? Because businesses can kind of weigh right. those risks and say, well, do we want to take a chance on a lawsuit? Maybe we shouldn't open up today until we get extra PPE in or something like that. And I think you would agree that of those two things, that's a lot better way to go than through regulation. Well, so, yeah, uh, I, I do agree that letting the market handle it is a better way to go than than regulation usually the two work hand in hand though right i mean if there's there's usually a regulation and then if you fail to abide by the regulation then that is kind of per se liability yeah um uh in in this case you know what what they're talking about again would be um sort of a heightened pleading standard, if you will, right? That, you know, it can't just be, oh, I got it there. They were negligent. It has to be something that they were uh, beyond, uh, you know, it was beyond a mere goof up. They were they were sort of grossly negligent or, um, uh, you know, willfully, uh, uh, you know, failed to, to follow basic uh, safety procedures. Um, but, I, but I guess, I, you know, the issue... Uh, Again, with that is is just the causality part of it, right? If when you have a pandemic that is widespread, and you can get it anywhere, yeah, uh, folks that are doing the right thing uh, may well be caught up um, just because well they're open. But again, on the other hand, that makes it a lot more difficult to to make that connection. So it would make it even more difficult for those cases. Well, that's, to... I mean, that's and I think that's the that's the argument that McConnell wants is is to have the the heightened. Um, uh, standard. I, I don't. I don't think. I mean, as uh, my understanding, it's, it's there's not an absolute immunity. Um, but right. uh, so, um, I, it, you know, it's just it's just another it's another case where I think a lot of folks. I know a lot of folks on the left say it just feels like that once again uh, the Republican sort of mainstream position is to imperil workers and consumers uh, for the for the sake of the people who are you know paying their paying their campaigns and, and the businesses and that sort of thing and it's just it seems like if nothing else it feels sort of tone deaf even if you don't necessarily accept that explanation of things well i i i i don't accept it. i just point, would point out that the counter view uh is that uh, we don't want a situation where businesses are afraid to open up because they might be named in a lawsuit um, uh, even if there's there's no basis for that lawsuit against them um, and again saying a lawsuit is is frivolous uh, is is one thing um, but it, in a lot of cases you could you could make a a non-frivolous case right and frivolous is sort of a, a term of art um, that look, yeah, I actually was at this place. Yes, I actually did get COVID. Uh, yeah, they were out of hand sanitizer that day. Um, and yeah. and then you know that's but so that I mean that's that's a non frivolous case. But uh, is it a meritorious case? No, I, I would think not. And and you would still be uh, yeah. risk the the you know risk of businesses saying, look, we'd rather just shut down. Uh, than be be hit with uh, uh, this potential liability. I will and, say, and, that, and in doing so, would would put a lot of their their workers out of out of jobs. So, yeah, I you know I think part of the issue here, I, I still maintain that Jay, you and I could get in the room and and uh, put something together that would be just fine. Well, in an afternoon, but the problem here also is that we actually no one's released publicly any details of what the competing uh, what the com the specific provisions of the liability right. shields or the state aid. All we've heard are of uh, Democrats want maybe six months or a year and, and Republicans want four years. But so much depends on 
what those specifics are and what the standard is. And we haven't seen any of that, just like we haven't seen any of the specifics of the the offers on state aid. How is it tied to, you know, COVID outbreaks or what it can be spent on? We have no idea about anything. So in, in a way, we're sort of we're sort of arguing in a in a informationless vacuum in this way because I think you and I probably generally agree that state aid could be put together in a way that doesn't give some sort of unfair advantage to uh, fiscally irresponsible states pre-COVID, just like I bet you we could agree on reasonable liability protections that could somehow, you know, that would still allow people to bring suits, but that would also make sure that businesses still had that concern in mind so that they just wouldn't open up with reckless disregard, you know? Yeah. And so that's... And like I said, a lot of state legislatures have done that already. Including Um, Ohio. Yep. Including Ohio. And, uh, uh, what all? Uh, I mean, I, I guess I, um, I, I will look at this and, and say I think that's actually reason for optimism that that we don't see these proposals out there because that indicates that maybe there's there's room for talking and 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 no one has has started uh, drawing lines yet, right? Um, but we'll see. So you're, I, I know we're running short, but your your prediction? Do you think we're going to get some sort of a stimulus deal before the end of 2020? I'm standing with my prediction that, yes, we will get some sort of a stimulus deal. Okay. And you know what, Jay? I'm going to, I've been so resolutely pessimistic for the last few weeks. I am going to say, I'm going to agree with you. God help me. I'm going to agree <laughs> with you and say that we will get some sort of a small ish deal, just enough at least to kind of ensure that people whose unemployment benefits will will run out, will get some sort of extension, and then there will be a larger deal, a more comprehensive deal at some point early on in the Biden administration. That's my prediction. I think that that is a good prediction. Okay, let's, let's hope so. Well, I think that about does it for today. But again, remember, uh, if you would like a second full-length Politics Guys episode every week, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. And this week, there were a number of things that we were hoping to get through, like, for instance, uh, Joe Biden's cabinet-level picks to this point, especially his uh, DOD pick. I think there's a lot to talk about there, certainly, and the whole idea of civilian control of the military. There's the Hunter Biden investigation. Uh, Certainly, that's been a big story, especially on the right. And also the fact that we're seeing a whole bunch of federal executions now, something that also we will get into and maybe even take some listener comments if we have time to do that. And again, all that is something you can check out if you become a Patreon supporter. And again, if you can't afford to become a supporter, just email me, Mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you all set up. And, you know, if being a monthly supporter is too much of a commitment, but you'd like to help us out occasionally, you can do that, too, through PayPal. You'll find a link on our website. It's politicsguys.com. And something that doesn't cost anything and it really is helpful is, is subscribing to the show, leaving ratings and reviews, and especially sharing episodes on social media. Can't emphasize how important that is getting the word out there. And if you just want to get generally in touch with us, mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we are also on Twitter at politicsguys. Special thanks to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.